Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Two Strike Noise, your weekly baseball podcast where we're going to switch things up a little bit this week. Uh, Mark, instead of you and I both having a story, I I decided, and I know you've already approved this, but I'm just going to ask again anyway. I think we're both going to argue on on one topic this week. We're both going to just talk about how baseball should bring back balloon protectors for home plate umpires. Are you you're, you're good with this? Yeah, it's fine. All right, good cuz I know this is a hot button issue for you. And Oh, yeah. I didn't do a lot of research on it. Did you do any research? No, none whatsoever. No. All right. Well, then So I'm ready. <laughs> let's scrap that and let's go back to the normal format that we usually follow here on Two Strike Noise. That uh was my co-host Mark A. Johnston. Say hello, Mark. Hey, it's Mark, and I'm super glad to be back with you all. Thanks for tuning in. Great to have you back. I'm Jeff Paulson, and uh, this is your weekly dose of baseball nonsense. So I think we came up with a name last week for this segment. I think we were going to call this BP. Yes, that's right. If we we didn't decide on that, we just did. And so we're going to just go over a couple of topics to kind of warm up for the the leadoff batter. Which will be, uh, I think I'm leading off this week. So let's start off here. I've got a question for you, Mark, and this is right up your alley. This is a Nolan Ryan subject. Okay, I've got my thinking cap on. Okay, can you name me? There are nine father and son combinations that have been struck out by Nolan Ryan, meaning that he has struck out the father and then the son wow. in the majors. Okay. Can you name me these? Well, the Griffies come to mind first. You, there's one. Okay. Now, you got to look at people who, you know, Nolan's career was, what, 26 years or something insane? About. So, so you get, in the early days, you know, you're fishing around for some 1970s players. Um, how about Buddy Bell? The Bells are not on this list. No. Okay. Well, it was worth a shot. And I Doubt he ever faced Yogi Berra, though he probably no. faced Dale Berra. I'll, huh. I'll, I'll, I'll give you some hints here. Okay. And, and and one of these is a father and two sons. Wait, I got it. The Boone family. The Boones are not on this list. Dang I it. thought they would have been. Yes. That was a good guess. But, Thank you. But I'll, I'll give you, this, I'll give you this, this clue again. One of them was a father who then went on to manage... And he had two sons, both of whom were all-stars, and one is now in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I got it now. The Ripken family. No. That's, a, that's another good guess, but it is not. And it's, in the, it's on the right team. The Alomars, Sandy Alomar Sr., and then uh-huh. Junior and Roberto Alomar. I doubt I would have come up with that. The, you, want me to, you want me to just give you the other ones here? Sure, Some of these I'm, I'm not, would be kind of hard. My thinking cap is, uh, it looks like it's a pirate's cap. It's not the... Uh, <laughs> It's not the Mariners. So so we've got Bobby and Barry Bonds, Tito and Terry Francona. Wow. The McCrays, Hal and Brian, Tony Perez and Eduardo Perez. Okay, so I did not know Dick Schofield's father played in the majors, let alone did I know Dick Schofield's father's name, <laughs> Ducky <Hey>. Schofield. <laughs> Ducky was an excellent dad, I heard. Dick Schofield was a hero in one of my strat leagues for, you know, he was the, the power hitting shortstop that hit ninth. Well, and I'm sure his dad, Ducky, was proud of him when he was leading your strat teams too. 
Yes. Uh, whatever and championships. Did you say Ducky became a manager? Oh, so he wasn't leading the flock. Okay. <laughs> hey, I tell you, I got a million of them. And then the final is Maury Wills and Bump Wills. Oh, my, I don't even think of Maury's son. Yeah, I, I don't put Bump and Maury together. But yeah. There you go. I will so start actually, now. Yeah, now definitely. So really, there's eight. I mean, that the, the Alamars is kind of a trick question because there's right. a father and then two sons. But I thought that I thought that was interesting. I, no, that's very interesting. When you have such a long career that you're striking out that many fathers and sons <laughs> is pretty impressive. Yeah, it surprises me about Bob Boone though. Although Boone, Bob Boone did play what for the Angels while Nolan was pitching for the Astros, I think. Next thing I wanted to go to, I saw, for some reason, a lot of smoking items came up this week. <laughs> uh, one which I found, this is an old article from Beckett. You, do you, you collected baseball cards, right? Oh, yeah. Um, mid to late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, I sold all I, those, though. I, I still have all mine, but I, I'm guessing like you subscribed to Beckett Baseball Card. It was monthly at that point. Now it's a digital. Oh, yeah. Uh, of course, you had to have the Beckett. Yeah, because that's the only way you knew knew what all your treasures were worth. But that's right. this is, I found this online, and it's a story, and again, no no date on this. It's It's got to be pre-2013, because Earl Weaver, who is the subject of the story, passed away in 2013. It's about a guy that lives here in, in the Bay Area, and he goes around to local thrift shops just looking for old jerseys that people have just, you know, given to charity. And so he does this religiously, and one time he walks in, and he sees an Orioles jersey, and he, he goes up to it, and it has all the markings of a actual game-used jersey. And he looks at it, and it's number four for the Baltimore Orioles, and it's got Weaver on the back. So he's pretty excited, as I would be at this point. Absolutely. It's, it's listed for $3. $3. <laughs> well, and it was uh, blue tags 50% off that day, I think. So he quickly takes it up, you know, and pays for it before anybody comes to their senses. But what he finds out is he wants to authenticate this. Is this a real Earl Weaver jersey? Right. So there is a, a card show in Baltimore that he's going to be at. So this guy buys tickets to go fly across country to go. And he takes the jersey to Earl Weaver and says, hey, is, does this look like your jersey? And he goes, does it have a pocket? And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, right here, inside, underneath the number, there is a pocket that is sewn in there for Earl Weaver to keep his cigarettes in. <laughs> So I've got a, a picture here that I'll post on our on our Twitter and our Instagram at Two Strike Noise that you can see that it was authenticated simply because there is a cigarette pocket inside the jersey. You know what? What a what a perfect way to authenticate it, though. It, well, it did. I mean, I never heard of that, and I'm sure I don't even think Jim Leland had one. And you know, Leland was like a chimney in the dugout his oh, yeah. whole career. But he would just go down the little runway and smoke there. Earl would just <laughs> pull one out from his jersey. I've also got another picture here. I love this picture. It is of the Cobra, Dave Parker. And I've got to assume this is in spring training because it looks like he's in the dugout. And it looks like the cinder block dugout, which is what you used to get in the 70s down in Florida. And he's in the Pirates, you know, the Pirates We Are Family uniform. He's got the stovetop 
pad on and the gold uniforms, and he is sitting in the dugout enjoying a cigarette himself. In the it, dugout? It's, yeah, it's it's and behind him, who I thought it might be Bill Madlock, but it's not. I I, I looked up who was number twenty three, and I forget who it was. But on this year, but he is smoking something, and he's holding his in a way that leads me to believe it might not be a cigarette. <laughs> oh man! Wow! But this is just in the dugout, though. It's <laughs> it's not something you would see today. I mean, I remember Jim Leland smoking in the dugout. 10, 15 years ago, but uh, you would not, you can't even, I mean, you can't even chew tobacco in some dugouts now. No, in fact, I was working um, in the clubhouse in Tacoma when they banned all tobacco products from the minor leagues. It took effect a certain day. So that night when everybody was gone, I had to go and get rid of all the tobacco and, and the chew. I mean, there was all different kinds. The tobacco companies would actually send cases of this stuff to the team and we'd put it out and they could just take it whatever they wanted. So it was, uh, it was interesting. I did take all that stuff and I disposed of it. I did not take it to my college and sell it. <laughs> I have to assume after that day, it was probably a little bit easier cleaning jerseys, not so much like chew stains. Oh yeah. It, you know, the guys would chew, but they would put it in their mouth in the, you know, the hallway to the dugout. And they would keep it, they wouldn't chew a big bunch of it, and then they would hide it in their lockers because Major League Baseball would actually send people to go look in the lockers for chew. Last thing I wanted to, wanted to touch on before we, we get to the top of the order, I want to ask you, what is, what's the best autograph you have? Um, well, I have, a, I have a framed Nolan Ryan 11 by 10 that uh, it has the uh, Certificate of Authenticity. This is a gift from my friend Jack, and, and what a gift it was. That's that's my favorite, but are you talking about maybe one I got in person? Yeah, what, one, one, one that you you created your own certificate of authenticity. Okay, so the card shows count? Absolutely, that's where okay. mine's coming from. So I went to a card show, and they were featuring none other than the great Bob Gibson. Now, oh, oh, nice. I'm a huge Bob Gibson fan, okay? I, I wasn't around when he was pitching, but I did know that he set the record for lowest earned run average on a season in uh, 1968 at 112 was his ERA. And it's okay. Yeah. And the next year, they lowered the mound nine inches. There are a few players that they will actually change the game and change the rules for. Wayne Gretzky comes to mind. If somebody's that good, that, that a rule gives them some sort of dominance, then they have to change the rules for everyone. So what you just said right there might come into play during my story. Ooh, nice. See, foreshadowing. Foreshadowing that stick yes. around. We'll be back right after this. And then my mom was with me because I hang out with my mom. You know, my mom who was with me just all of a sudden asked him out of nowhere. I heard you played with the Harlem Globetrotters for a year. <laughs> no, I didn't know what she was talking about. So I'm like starting to get embarrassed. He answers, yeah, that was the most fun year of my life, playing with the Globetrotters. And I went, you did play with the Globetrotters? And he said, yeah, absolutely. It was fun. And so I got my two Bob Gibson cards signed. Those are my prized possessions. Nice. So I likewise have a Nolan Ryan autograph. I have I have a framed picture of one of the Texas newspapers the day after he struck out Ricky Henderson for was that his three thousandth strikeout? Ricky I mean, was four thousand, I believe. Four 
fourth, whatever it was, I've got that. But I, that was a gift. But uh, I've, I've, I've gotten Ricky Henderson a couple of times in person. But I think the one that stands out to me getting in person was at a card show. And I was, I was in high school. So I, and socially awkward. So I did not have the nerve like you did to talk to him. But uh, it was Willie Stargell. Oh, nice. Pops. So I got, I got a, you know, I bought a, an eight by 10 there and got him to sign it. And, you know, I remember vaguely my earliest baseball memories was around, you know, the time we, our family was, was dominant. So I was, I was in awe of him and just kind of quickly got it and ran away. Like I, you know, (laughs) was going to bother him, but that is probably, you know, beyond my Ricky Henderson stuff, which is always very important to me. That was the one I enjoy the most. So let's, uh, let's wrap up batting practice. Let's, uh, wheel away the batting cage, let them chalk the lines here and we'll pretend the anthem has been sung and I'm, I'm leading off this week. Let's do it. So this week I'm going to talk about another great character in the game. Last week I had so much fun doing Harry Carey and I, I was, I wanted to do somebody else along that line, but I wanted to do a player. So I am going to this week talk about Satchel Page. So he was born Leroy Robert Page on July 7th, 1906. We think this is this is going to be a reoccurring thing with Satchel Page. He would never tell anybody how old he was ever. Every video I saw of him, he would skate around it. Every article about him, he'd skate around it. There is a a story that I'll uh, I can I can give you the gist of it right now. Bill Veck signed him to play for the Indians when he was in the majors and actually hired an investigator to try and find out when Satchel Page was born. And the investigator investigator came back with the answer of before the year 1900. <laughs> oh, like, man. E- even older than he than he actually was. But wow. according to family records, it looks like he was born in 1906. Gotcha. So he was born in Mobile, Alabama. His family was very poor. And I, you can probably guess what life was like in Alabama for a poor black family at this point. Uh, segregation defined the South and obviously no different in Alabama. He was one of six kids. The children were expected to help earn money as soon as possible for this family. Leroy was no different, and he actually had more expectation put on him because of his long, lanky frame. They expected him to be able to go out and do some labor. And so he did. He would carry luggage back and forth from the train station to the hotels. Now, at this point, luggage was often referred to as satchels. And you can probably see where I'm going here. He would earn about 10 cents for every trip from the train station to the hotel. And that just wasn't enough. You know, during the day, he couldn't make enough trips. So he came up with a contraption that would actually pull together up to four satchels at a time so he could carry more each trip. So at one point, he was taking four satchels at one point and a fellow porter told him he looked like a satchel tree while carrying all of them. And thus... (laughs) From there on out, he was known as Satchel. Nice. Now, I actually have some breaking news. I just found a video today 
of Satchel Paige on the Dick Cavett show from 1970. Whoa. And Satchel told a completely different story. And this is out of the man's mouth. So I, I'm going to give this a little bit more weight, even though I love that story about the, the Satchel contraption that he came up with. Yes. Satchel said that he used to make baseballs out of his mom's old stockings. And then he had a couple of gloves that he had procured, as he said. And he would go to play ball with the neighborhood kids. But if they didn't let him pitch, he would take his balls and his gloves and put them in a satchel and go home. And he says that's why they called him Satchel. Hmm. So an, an equally good story, I don't know which one to believe. I, like I said, I'm kind of leaning towards the one that came straight yeah. from the horse's mouth. As, as with many things from that baseball era, we have no idea what really happened. We can only make our guesses. Yeah, it, but it was so great to be able to see video of, oh, that's of awesome, him, yeah. you know, talking. And, and I found he was on a couple of game shows, too, like, uh, you know, where, they, where the judges are blindfolded and have to guess, you know, who this uh, person is and stuff. Yeah. Really interesting, interesting stuff. So, uh, Satchel started to get in some trouble, though, as he got a little bit older. Uh, well, he had come up with that great method to carry more satchels at a time. He started to come up with a better way to make money, which was just to steal the satchels. <laughs> he was caught. He was sentenced to six years at the Alabama Reform School for Juvenile Negro Lawbreakers. <laughs> like, come on, Alabama. What that's kind a, of a name is that? That's a segregation... <laughs> a southern segregation name. I'm sure it was separate, uh, but very equal, right? Uh-huh. So, uh, as I mentioned, Satchel enjoyed playing baseball in his neighborhood. So, his time at reform school actually offered him plenty of time to perfect his natural skills as they had a baseball team. And he was actually taught for the first time the fundamentals of pitching. Oh. So, at this point, Satchel stood six foot four, but he weighed only a buck forty. Wow. You know, if he turned a certain way, you, you'd lose him. He, he was just a skin yeah. and bones. So he had huge hands, though, which was great for hiding the ball. And his lanky arms and legs were perfect for providing momentum from his windup. And it was here that Satchel developed his signature windup style. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure, Mark, you probably have in your mind a picture of Satchel Page and his windup. I, I know I did, especially after watching videos. But in case you don't, I found a great description from author Larry Ty, who wrote an article for the Society for American Baseball Research that he did on Satchel Page. And it goes like this. The first thing was to kick his foot so high before unleashing the baseball that it blacked out the sky and befuddled the batter. So left leg held skyward, right arm stretched as far as it would behind him. The catapult cocked to give the ball maximum power as he whirled forward to release it. Then the novice pitcher swung his arm far enough forward that it seemed like his hand was right in front of the batter's face when he let go of the ball. <laughs> I, I think that's a perfect explanation of his, of his motion because he was as I already mentioned, tall and lanky, and his motion was all arms and legs and knees and elbows. Yeah, it was like doing stretching calisthenics. It, yeah, it's great. It's like one of those old-timey videos where they're yes. working out, and, and that's what his windup looked like. Yep. So it was at this school that Satchel really developed his power. 
So even though it's the, you know, it was the same five ounce cork filled ball that, that we still use today coming at a batter, it looked like a cannonball. So he had not yet, though, developed his legendary accuracy at this point. But of his time in juvie, Page said this upon his release. You might say I traded five years of freedom to learn how to pitch. Hmm. So he served his time and he immediately joins the ranks of the Negro Leagues and quickly works his way up to the top tier teams. And as you can guess, record keeping in the Negro Leagues was not what one would call complete. Yeah. As they just they couldn't afford to hire people to keep records and 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 keep score. So the best guess at some of his numbers might be a little bit underwhelming when you think of Satchel Page. Officially in the Negro Leagues, he finished with a mark of 103 and 61 with 1231 strikeouts and just 253 face-on balls. Wow. <clears throat> but to look at these numbers you have to understand how Page was used. And when I say used, I mean used a lot. Page was the biggest draw in the Negro Leagues. He was it. When people came to the park to watch a game in which Satchel was in the stadium, they expected him to pitch. So he would often only pitch three to four innings per game so that he could then pitch again the next day. So obviously, three to four innings is not enough to earn a win in baseball. So that could account for some of his low win totals. Yeah, that's interesting. They they uh, took the uh, importance of what the fans wanted ahead of uh, what might have been the strategy to win. Yeah, well, I mean, I think in these days, you know, it was about making money and, and that gate and getting people in the stands. Yeah. And they flocked to see him. It was, you know, it was big crowds wherever he would go. And, I, you know, I just thought of it. He was the original opener, I guess. <laughs> So these numbers did not include a lot of games also that he played while barnstorming during the offseason, and he also spent a couple of years playing in other countries. So he played two seasons for a team in South Dakota where he went 35-2, and two, but those type of numbers are not included in his Negro League mark because they were not part of the official Negro League. So huh. Satchel kept his own records. He was a great showman and a great self-promoter, and he kept a notebook full of his own notes. So let me tell you some of the numbers that he wrote down, and you might want to take some of these with a grain of salt. <laughs> he claims to have pitched in more than 2,500 games, winning over 2,000 of them. While winning 2,000, he claims to have thrown 250 shutouts, he says he struck out 22 batters in one barnstorming game against major leaguers. He claims to have thrown 50 no-hitters and made 29 starts in a single month. <laughs> wow. He, he says he won 21 straight games at one point through 62 consecutive scoreless innings and once won three games in a single day. So those are some numbers. Those are going to be tough to beat. Those are, again, there's no way to verify any of these things. But, you know, when you think about it, though, he accomplished similar feats against some of the top teams in the Negro Leagues, like the Homestead Grays, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, you know, all of these kind of seminal Negro League teams he was spectacular against. So it's kind of easy to imagine him doing these against the local teams and lesser opponents 
as he's playing in, you know, smaller venues. That That's true. That makes sense. So then 1947 happened. Of course, that is Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in baseball. Satchel really, really, really wanted to be that first player to, to break the color barrier, but it just didn't happen, obviously. Page, however, was signed the next year in the middle of the season to pitch for the Cleveland Indians by none other than Bill Veck, as I mentioned. Page, at this point, was 42 years old, pitching his rookie year in the majors. Wow. He finished with a 2.48 ERA, which was second best in the American League. He finished fourth in the Rookie of the Year voting, and uh, he had a record of 6-1, and one, which helped the Indians beat out the Red Sox for the AL pennant. He then went on to be the first black player to pitch in the World Series. So he pitched for six more seasons in the majors, some with the Indians, some with the St. Louis Browns, and then finally with the Kansas City Athletics for one, one appearance. And I'll get to that in one minute. So he finished his career with a major league mark of 28 and 31 and a career ERA of 3.29. But remember, he was 42 when he finally made it to the bigs. So you can only imagine what he might have done, you know, if he would have had the opportunity to play his whole career there. Oh, yeah. So his final game, as I mentioned, it was with the Kansas City Athletics, owned by Charlie Finley. When they he signed him to a one-day contract to come and pitch. And it was really thought to be more of a promotional event. In ni- and this is in 1965. So he was 42 when he made his major league debut. He's now around 59 years old. And I say around because, again, we don't know right. when he was actually born. His catcher that day was 33 years younger than him. <laughs> so, again, this is just thought to be a promotional stunt. Well, he goes out there against the Red Sox and shuts them out for three innings, <laughs> giving up only one base hit. To our buddy, Carl Yastrzemski, who hits anybody that I profile. So just think of that at, at age 59. Let's think about think about the oldest pitcher that is still in the game right now. And that would be, although he's, he's unsigned currently, that would be big sexy, Bartolo Colon. That's what's going to be my guess. Bartolo Colon is going to turn 59 in the year 2032. That's the year (laughs) after Bryce Harper's contract expires. (laughs) That's how far off it was. And this guy is still starting and he comes in. It is just one game, but he, he shuts out the Red Sox and only gives up one hit. That's just incredible. He was finally voted into the Hall of Fame in 1971. He was the first player to be voted in based on his play in the Negro Leagues. So he wasn't the first black player voted in, but he was the first black player voted in on the strength of what he did before he got to the major leagues, before he was allowed to play in the major leagues. Right. He passed away in his home in Kansas City in 1982, and his gravestone is a work of art. It's got a, uh, it's got a list of, of things that he loved to say to people to help them live better lives. And the last one of them is, don't look back, something might be gaining on you, which is, you know, his most famous quote. Yes. So I've got a couple of stories, uh, quick stories here uh, that I found. One of his favorite moves was to call in all of his outfielders and then single-handedly strike out the other side. So I've heard about these kind of stories about Satchel Page before, but to read about them is great. And he took this to a new level in the Negro League World Series in 1942. 
So Josh Gibson. Josh Gibson was the guy they called the uh, Black Babe Ruth, right? Actually, Babe Ruth was usually referred to as the white Josh Gibson. That's much better. It is. And, and Josh Gibson is one of only two people to be credited with ever hitting a home run ball out of old Yankee Stadium. The other oh. one being Babe Ruth. This is the World Series they're playing in. So he intentionally walks two batters to load the bases just to face Josh Gibson. Oh my God. <laughs> Struck him out on three pitches. <laughs> and this is this is verified too. This one is is <laughs> absolutely verified. So he didn't call the infield in, but he walked the bases loaded to get to him. He liked to name his pitches. Uh, so this is similar to Randy Johnson and Uncle Snappy. He named his pitches the Bat Dodger. One was called Thoughtful Stuff. Another one was Long Tom. His most famous pitch was called B-Ball. It was a fastball that was so fast the seams reportedly made a buzzing sound as it flew past the batter. Nice. He also had some trick pitches that he would work in there, like the Midnight Creeper, the Wobbly Ball, and the Whipsy Dipsy Doo. I mentioned this earlier when you were talking about Bob Gibson. He also had a hesitation pitch where he would pause mid-delivery and, you know, screw up the batter's timing. Right. When he was in the major leagues, he would do this and the batters complained about it. And eventually it was outlawed. He had the rules changed because yeah. something he was doing was. See? You can get really good. You just can't get better than the game allows. Page credited his longevity to an ointment made from snake oil. So while he was playing in North Dakota in the 30s, he became friends with a local medicine man who gave him a concoction of rattlesnake venom and gunpowder. And he swore by that his whole career. He'd rubbed that on his arm. Uh, Page starred alongside Robert Mitchum in a 1959 cowboy movie called The Wonderful Country. Well, Page, this also endeared him to me. Uh, he often referred to himself in third person, just like one Mr. Ricky Henderson does. Yeah. He used to call himself Old Satch. <laughs> Old Satch is going to go out there and mow him down today. Uh, a couple of quotes that I that I uh, found about him. This one is from uh, Satchel himself. One time I snuck a ball on with me, and when I went to winding up, I threw one of the balls to first and one to second. I was so smooth, I picked off both runners and fanned the batter without the umpire or the other team even knowing. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm not sure that I believe that, but that's a good story. That's great. And then the great Joe DiMaggio called Satchel Page the best and fastest pitcher I have ever faced. Wow. Here's a great piece of audio I found from, from Vin Scully. The immortal Vin Scully tells this great Satchel Page story. So I'm going to let Vin tell it because he can definitely tell it better than I. The Miami Marlins were a triple-A minor league ball club owned by Bill Veck. Yeah, the same Bill Veck. Strike one pitch on the way is off the plate. One of the things that uh, Bill Veck did as a promotion, he signed Satchel Page, who was very close to being 50 years old and still pitched very well in AAA. The 1 1 pitch, Gonzalez doesn't get it on a big swing, 1 and 2. On that ball club back in 1956 was Whitey Herzog, now a Hall of Fame manager, but Whitey was an outfielder. And they were playing in Rochester, New York. 
and Herzog was out in the outfield and he noticed a promotional thing in the Rochester ballpark. The one two pitch fouled away. There was a hole in the fence in center field and above it was a sign. If you hit the ball in the air through the hole you get ten thousand dollars. So Herzog went back into the clubhouse got a bunch of balls went out to center field and tried to throw a ball through the hole and he couldn't do it. The one two pitch on the way is a ground foul. So then when he went back in before the game started Whitey was talking to Satchel Page he said Satch you see that hole out there in center field and Page said yes wild child. He said I'll bet you a, a bottle of bourbon that you can't throw the ball through that hole. The one two pitch inside ball two. So the next day before batting practice Herzog had a bunch of balls and he took Satchel Page out. Herzog marched off 60 feet inches from the hole. The next pitch foul back. He gave Satchel Page the ball and Satchel said wild child does the ball fit through the hole and Whitey Herzog said Satchel it sure does. He said then you have a bet. So he held the ball up and looked over the ball like he was aiming a rifle. 2 2 pitch and Adrian pulls it foul. Now Page winds up and throws the ball goes into the hole spins around and pops out again. And Herzog thinks holy mackerel he'll never come any closer to that. Page picks up the next ball aims right through the hole clean as a whistle. He said wild charge I will take that and walked off the field. So the Miami Marlins and Bill Beck and Satchel Page my thanks to Adrian Gonzalez for fouling off Number all seven. those pitches Alex as he strikes out and we have one down here in the bottom of the third inning. Good breaking ball and Adrian quit on it thinking it was inside. So this Satchel Page guy is it like he was as they say in the sandlot more than a human but not quite a god? He was and I you know I, I talked about he 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 developed his power while he was doing his time right but you know he was legendary for things like this and, and striking out people with with no outfielders or striking out josh gibson after walking the bases loaded he also had that accuracy uh, i mean yeah. it's just he, he was just incredible and uh you know a, a great character and you know one of those one of those what ifs there were so many of them that you know what if they could have spent their entire career right. playing against major league players you know how different the game would be how different the oh, record yeah. books would be oh absolutely i mean major league baseball screwed itself through you know bigotry through not allowing everyone to play the game they missed out on some of the best players in history they missed out on some of the best characters in history. yeah and, and you know something i didn't cover a whole lot was his barnstorming uh, he would barnstorm after the season with his group of all-stars and they would tour the country and they would play Bob Feller's group of all-stars. So it was the teams oh, wow. weren't integrated, but they were playing each other. And Rapid Robert, I saw some some interviews with him and he was nothing but complimentary about how incredible that team was and how there was the toughest competition that they would ever face was those barnstorming, you know, games between between those two teams. Wow. Well, that's pretty fun stuff, Jeff. I enjoyed that.
Yeah, there you have it. There is a, a very abbreviated history of Satchel Page, but so I have now reached base leading off the game. It's now up to you as the number two hitter to uh, to move me around. What what have you got for me this week? Well, I've been talking about, you know, important games and stuff like that. And I started doing a little research and found out that it the 1960 World Series Game 7, which I've always known about, um, you know, the Bill Mazeroski home run, uh, had a lot of interesting things going on. And uh, it even, the story continues 50 years after the game. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about 1960 World Series Game 7. Let's do it. It's considered one of the two greatest games of all time alongside, of course, 1975 World Series Game 6. At the time, let's kind of look at what was going on at the time. In 1960, there were 16 teams, uh, eight in the American, eight in the National. Everybody played 154 games. And the tough part is first place in each league went to the World Series. No playoffs. No wild card. You finished a game out of first. (laughs) Tough luck. Yep. See you next year. Hope you get better so you can win that one game. Um, So they hadn't discovered that playoffs equals money quite yet. In those days, the Yankees, um, incredibly dominant team as they have been at different times in in franchise history. Um, Their general manager, whose name was George Weiss, he's kind of a legend. It was said that he was the best in the country at developing and spotting talent. Um, He had put together their team from the 1950s, who were very dominant. That team in the 50s, the Yankees won six World Series in 10 years. So I would say that's pretty successful as a GM. I would say Um, I I would take that. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, years later, he he was no, no longer working for the Yankees. He was working for the Mets. And he put together a team in 1969. That ended up winning the World Series, and that's that's a miracle. The miracle Mets, yeah. <laughs> so, Mr. George Weiss was quite adept at putting ball clubs together. Not known as the friendliest guy, he would actually uh, hire private investigators to follow his players around, make sure they're not doing anything they're not supposed to be doing. Uh, didn't get along with everyone real well. In fact, it was uh, it was Billy Martin that he got into a brawl with at, uh, at a nightclub. And it was the, the famous fight. Billy Martin got in a fight, and he got traded to Kansas City. That was against George Weiss, his GM. <laughs> so on the, on the flip side, the other team, the GM for the Pirates was another baseball legend. His name was Harrison Ford. Oh, no, 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 no. Branch Rickey. Harrison Ford played Branch Rickey. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I thought that was a little odd. I can't read my notes. Yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, Ricky was in a situation where the Pirates were just an awful team, and they had been awful for a long time. Um, what happened with the the Brooklyn Dodgers is that Branch Ricky battled Walter O'Malley for control of the team. Branch Ricky ended up losing the Brooklyn Dodgers. So he was hired to be the GM of the Pirates, and it was quite the challenge. The Pirates had finished in last place every year from 52 to 55. And in three seasons in a row, they lost over 100 games. So not known as a powerhouse, but (laughs) within six years, Ricky made them World Series champions. So Branch Ricky, you know, again, showing off. Moving along, the the Yankees ended the season in 1960 with 15 straight wins, uh, which is a miracle how they did it with uh, such no-name players as Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, Roger Maris, Yogi Berra, 
Elston Howard, Bill Scowron, you know, a bunch of nobodies. Can, can and, you go uh, through those names again? I, I don't, I might have known one of them, but. I'll, I'll send you a text. Okay. But the Pirates were not slouches. These are when it came to superstars. Uh, they had the Cy Young Award winner that year, Vernon Law. They had the league MVP that year, Dick Grote. He also won the batting title. They had this young upstart player that, man, he was getting good real fast. His name was Roberto Clemente. And they had uh, Bill Verdon and, of course, the famous Bill Mazeroski. So, kind of catching up here to get to Game 7. So, we'll go over the first six games. The Pirates won games 1, 4, and 5 by close scores of 6-4, to 3-2, to two, and 5-2. to two. Now, the Yankees won, obviously, games 2, 3, and 6, but in a little more dominant fashion. They won 16-3, to 10 to nothing, and 12 to nothing. So the Pirates had kind of squeaked out their three games while the Yankees had dominated their three games. Got it. So the deciding game was going to be played at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh on Thursday, October 13th. Now, it was a day game because back then, all World Series games were played in the day. And it was because of tradition. Um, every team except the Cubs at Wrigley Field already had lights and were playing night games. But tradition warranted that World Series has to be played during the day. Here's the here's the game, and we're going to go to the bottom of the ninth here, and in in the bottom or the bottom of the eighth. I'm sorry, Bill Verdon for the Pirates hit a double play style ball to shortstop Tony Kubek, and it took a really weird hop, and it hit Kubek in the throat. He had to be taken out of the game, and both runners were safe instead of having a double play, and that opened the floodgates for the Pirates hitters. Hal Smith hit a home run; they took the lead nine to seven. So the Yankees, when they came up for the top of the ninth, um. They've got one more run on the board, and they have runners at first and third with one out. Are you keeping up? Yep. All right, this is where it gets really weird. The Pirate first baseman, Rocky Nelson, snags this really hard-hit grounder by Yogi Berra. And he hits it down the first base line. Nelson dives for it, snags it. He gets up. It, before he gets up, he's right next to first base. So he just tags first base with his glove, forcing out Yogi Berra. Mm -hmm. But very strange. Mickey Mantle has barely gotten off of first base. He didn't run with, uh, with the hit. So he's standing a few feet off of first base. He sees the force play taken off and decides, well, I can get back to first base. And he pulls this deke move where he like slant left and then he pulls right and he dives and he gets in under the tag. And he's actually safe at first. And you can watch, you can actually see the play. Just look it up on YouTube or something. And you can see the this the moves that Mickey Mantle puts on him and, and gets he, he does, he gets in there safely. You know, if you got Nelson on the right field side of the bag and, and Mantle dives in on the home plate side of the bag. So it's kind of weird, but you know, you, and you wonder, you know, why didn't Nelson throw the ball the second to get the double play? Well, you probably just instinct I can get an out here. Why didn't Mickey Mantle run to second? No clue. Um, why didn't he tag first and then come home with the ball to make sure the run didn't score. Uh, it's really weird. It just was an odd play and it really changed everything because the run scored and it was, uh, it ended up being nine to nine. The game would have been over. And so the, uh, the top of the nine ties it up for the Yankees. Pirates get up in the bottom of the ninth scores nine to nine. And you know the story. The defensive wonder third baseman Bill Mazeroski steps up to the plate to face Ralph Terry. First pitch ball, 
Um, there's a mound visit from the catcher. Terry throws a fastball. Maz hits the ball over the 406-foot sign in left field. Yogi Berra goes back, back, back. Then he tries to play the carom, but the ball clears the fence. Yogi goes home. Game over. Series over. Pirates are champions. Bill Mazeroski skips around the base paths. That's right. And there's that famous footage of you know people running up and pounding him on the on the shoulder. And that's the kind of thing that you would do, Jeff, is run onto the field after a, a great play or something like that. I've seen you do it. I do it all the time. So that's the end of the story, right? No, 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 no. Wait, time out. There's more. I wouldn't have told this story without some weird supplemental thing to add to the to the end. So this is interesting. Back in 1960, they didn't record the games that were broadcast. They just broadcast them. So this game was supplemented only by highlight footage that MLB caught and photographs from the day. But Jeff, don't panic yet because a baseball miracle is about to occur, allowing us to watch this game in its entirety. Okay, here's the story. Bing Crosby. Yep, I'm talking about Bing Crosby, born in Tacoma, Washington, by the way. He was part owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and he loved baseball. But the problem was when it would get to a really important game, he would get really nervous about it. So he was really nervy, didn't want to go to the game in Pittsburgh. He didn't want to watch it on TV. So he and his wife and their friends flew off to Paris, and they were listening to the game on the radio when Mazeroski hit the home run, and they went crazy, and they had a lot of, you know, celebrating there. But I found this quote from his wife, Catherine Crosby, which I, I think is funny because it talks about Bing and his excitement. But I also think it's funny in that this is the kind of stuff that could happen around this house when exciting things go on during baseball games. Catherine Crosby said, we were in this beautiful apartment listening on shortwave. And when it got close, Bing opened a bottle of scotch and was tapping it against the mantle of the fireplace. When Mazeroski hit the home run, Bing tapped it hard. The scotch flew into the fireplace and started a conflagration. I was screaming, and Nani said, it's very nice to celebrate things, but couldn't we be a bit more restrained? <laughs> <laughs> My answer is no. That being alcohol going into the fireplace, I'm assuming yeah. that went up. And I, I did have to look up what a conflagration was. Oh, bang. A conflagration is like a, an accidental fire. All right. So that's stated. Bing had done something that we should all be thanking him for this day, but he didn't know. He had asked NBC to record the game so he could watch it when he got back from Paris. So they did, and they used what's called um, a kinescope. The kinescope was black and white, even though the game was actually shown in color. But what they all they did was set up a monitor, put this kinescope in front of it, and then record what happened on the monitor. So it's in black and white. And as crazy as it sounds, 50 years later, this game is found in film canisters marked 1960 World Series, and they were discovered in amazing condition in Bing Crosby's wine cellar. <laughs> so we wow. actually do have a full copy of the 1960 World Series Game 7 with Bill Mazeroski's Miracle Home Run. And uh, you can actually, I looked it up, you can get it on Amazon. For twelve ninety nine, it Major League Baseball actually showed the game in its entirety back in October of twenty ten. And if uh, and if you're a fan and and, and you, you know unlike what I talked about last week, the nineteen oh eight National League Championship, you can actually watch this game and uh, watch how strange it is and all 
all the the crazy back and forth and and watch Mickey's dive into first base and all that stuff. Uh, it it actually is a, a legendary game that nobody had seen for fifty years until, for some reason, Bing Crosby set them nicely in his wine cellar and they kept nice and cool. Interesting though how they just basically put a camera on the live broadcast. Yeah, but it's actually in pretty good shape. You can find it online, but not legally. And I don't suggest anybody illegally download anything ever. But yeah, we have a uh, we have Bing Crosby to thank. He, you know, he could he could come out and say, you know, I did this for you people. I wanted you to watch this great game, but he he can't because you know because he's dead. He's dead. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I remember Tony Kubek because when I first got into baseball, I believe he was on that NBC Saturday game of the week. He was oh, yeah. one of the announcers that would normally do those games. And I didn't have any idea who he was other than an announcer. And then my dad kind of told me the history of, of Tony Kubek and how he got hit in the throat. And I actually saw that video. And that ball, oh, wow. that ball takes a nasty hop. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. When I read that, I, <laughs> I, it just, I hearkened back to my days of playing. And might I add, playing poorly. Um, and playing second base and a line drive that just hit a rock came right up, hit me in the throat, knocked me over backwards. I became an outfielder the next day. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I am, I, I would just, I just watched a little bit. I watched the play of, uh, of Mickey doing his little dance at first base there. Oh yeah. Isn't that funny? It's an interesting play. He just, he deeks left and then he dives to the inside part of the bag and, um, Nelson, Rocky Nelson is not exactly standing on firm ground as he's just made a play, tagged a bag, trying to get back up. So it's kind of a tough play for him to make. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. And we are going to jump into something that we like to call, and so we do, second best. Your second best. Better than most of the rest. Not better than number one. Number one is better than anyone. So it is my turn to come up with a topic today. If you are new here, welcome. This is the portion of the show where we come up with a topic that the other person is unaware of. And we don't want to know what the best answer is to the question. We want to know what the second best answer is to the question. So I am going to give Mark my topic for today. I'll give him some time to gather his thoughts and while I tell you what my answers are and then we'll hear from Mark. So Mark, today I want to know what you think is the second best looking uniform of all time. Hmm. Okay. So this was this is uh this is a, a tough one for me. Because I love I love looking at uniforms and different styles, and you know I'm I'm excited that the Padres are going to be bringing back their their brown uniforms. I'm super excited about that. Oh yeah, uh, my favorite uniform though, and again, you know it's it's kind of hard when you're when you're when you're such a fan of a team. My I think the best uniform is actually a modern uniform. And I think it is the Oakland A's Kelly Green uniforms. 
I love these. They started wearing them last year. They only wear them on home Friday games, but they are Kelly green, the tops and the hats. And I love them. I only wear my Kelly green hat on special occasions because I, I don't want to get it dirty. And that would be, I think that is the best uniform. Now for my second best uniform, I am going to actually stray into your territory and I'm going to have to say that I think the second best uniform of all time is the Houston Astros uh, popsicle uniform with the, with the horizontal orange yellow stripes. Oh, yeah. I love See, dude, you just took my first one. I, I figured yeah. it would probably be on your list somewhere. But <laughs> it's my number one right there. You can't not talk about those uniforms when you talk oh, about the best uniforms. Absolutely. I mean, they're a little bit better than those White Sox uh, uniforms when they played wearing shorts. With the shorts, yeah. And because and the, those, the, your, the tops had like big collars and they weren't tucked in. Like it was a, it was a, like almost a leisure suit look up top. But mm-hmm. it was, look it up, folks. It's a strange looking uniform. And they're, they're actually wearing shorts when they're playing ball. Yeah. And, you know, they, they wore the tops. The, the White Sox wore those tops in a, uh, turn back the clock game just a year or so ago, but they did not wear the shorts. Yeah, that could have been an injury thing. I don't know. That's pretty funny though. But you got me. You got me kind of stumped. But I think I have an answer. Okay. Um, first place, as we have discussed, was your second best. In fact, I have Nolan Ryan jerseys home and away from those years. The uh, yeah, I think I think as a Nolan Ryan fan, you got to have got to have a Nolan Ryan yeah. from that year. Yeah, I've got. I got home and away. So, you know, because I, I just couldn't decide. So I had to get both. But my second favorite. Oh, wow. This is kind of a tough one. Um, I have always liked the colors for the Colorado Rockies. You know, and I'm not a Rockies fan, but I don't dislike the Rockies. You know, they're fine to root for. I'm, like I'm in the exact same boat. Exact yeah. same boat. I don't I don't hate them. I'll usually root for them. And I do like the purple, that dark purple. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. The it's like black and dark purple, and it looks kind of menacing. And you know, it's the Rockies when you turn on the TV. Sometimes you'll see grayish uniforms or a, a color that's real popular. Which team is this? You always know the Rockies when you when you flip the channel. And it's those those cool uniforms, which I don't own one of. But if any listener wants to send me one, I'm up for it. <laughs> Number thirty four, please. Um, but seriously, those are cool uniforms, and I think they've done a really good job with them over the years. So I'm going to go with second favorite uniform, Colorado Rockies. Nice. So I, you know, we we both steered away from '70s uniforms, and there were some yeah. great ones. I mean, I, I talked about the the Padres that are bringing back the brown uniforms. Remember, the Phillies at one point had all maroon uniforms. The pants and oh, the wow. top were maroon. Then they went to the Phillies, the the Royals, and the Cardinals, and the Braves. All had like, well, the car the, the the Royals had powder blue, but everybody else had kind of baby blue. And they wore yeah. the, both the tops and the pants. Yeah. And then the Pirates, of course, in that picture that I was talking about with Dave Parker, had the gold uniforms. Uh, the A's had all gold uniforms at one point in the seventies, maybe late. Yeah, it had to be had to be in the seventies. 
So yeah. 70s was a great time for some very colorful well, uniforms. One thing about the 70s is that stirrup socks were, were worn by everyone. Yep. Actual stirrup socks. And you, ha- yeah, you had to show- the painted on ones. Yeah. The, the, the league rule, you had to show a certain number of, or a certain number, a certain amount of, of sock. Like you had to yes. see it. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of stirrups personally. So I am too. I, I you know, you're right. Those those were those uniforms were different, but I wouldn't call them ugly as I would call a lot of things from the seventies. No, no. I I I mean, and if they have a turn back the clock game and they wear those, I get excited and I will go out of my way to watch it. Because I, I like to see them. I don't know if I would want to see them every day, but Right. So there you have it. That is that is second best, uh, second best uniforms of all time here today. If you think we're idiots and have missed clearly missed a best or second best uniform that you have in mind, please feel free to to yell at us. You can yell at us uh, as I mentioned either on Twitter or Instagram at Two Strike Noise. That's T W O Strike Noise. We would love to hear from you. Send us a picture. Let us see what you're talking about. And let's just throw this out there. If you have a second best topic that you would like us to cover, why not let us know? Be happy to, we'll be happy to judge, first of all, if it's good enough, as we like to do. But then, (laughs) uh, (laughs) you know, we've, we've only got so many, we're only so creative. So throw something at us. Yeah, absolutely. I've had some people make some suggestions on topics they wouldn't mind hearing. And and yeah, and the second best category is a great thing to throw in there too. So we are open for suggestions. Sure. So check us out, like I said, on social media. And uh, we hope to see you again. Mark, this was fun. Thank you very much. Uh, you want to do this again next week? Yeah, let's do it again next week. I don't got anything going on. All right. It's been a pleasure, Jeff. You, sir, are a gentleman and a scholar. You, sir, are... Okay, you're a gentleman. Out of here? If you get it, twist my arm. You're a gentleman, too. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. God bless you. Good night. <laughs> Thank you. And we'll see you next week on Two Strike Noise.